I want you to say hi to my friend Linda. Can anybody say hi, Linda? Okay, so um, if you look up the word, well, it's, it's two words, but if you look up the words hard work in the dictionary, her mug is right under that phrase. This is one of the hardest working human beings I've ever seen in my life. Um, not just in her career, but in ministry. And I asked Linda to share today, and I just want to do a quick interview with her because it really sets up what I'm going to be talking about today. Um, Linda is involved in a ministry that most people, especially if you're a believer, you, you would say that it matters, but what she does is not the comfortable route of ministry. Um, she volunteers nearly full-time and still runs her business on the side, has her career. She is working with what the Bible would call the least of these, the down and out, the outcasts, those who maybe don't have as much value in the eyes of society. So what I'd like you to do real quick is just tell us what this ministry is, what do you do, and how did you gain a heart for this? So... I didn't really know I'd ever be working in jail and prison. Um, Joe Haney, she works in there too. I think she, she's worked in there longer than I have. Um, in fact, I know she has. I just work in there often because I work for myself, so I just make a lot of time in there. Um, and it seems like to be a pretty natural fit for me. So uh, I go in there. I didn't know I'd be working in there. Someone mentioned jail ministry once, and then the people that mentioned it don't work there anymore, but I just stayed in there. Uh, it seemed like a good fit for me. It's just, there's no light in there, mm -hmm. so it's a very dark place. Yeah. Um, the first thing I notice is they don't welcome Jesus in there or Jesus' people necessarily. So the light that you know we do bring in there, mm -hmm. that's pretty much the only light that there is in there. and. The ladies that come in there, um, I've seen probably about 700 yeah. um, in the five years that I've been there. Yeah. And I spend, I don't know, probably about almost 1,500 hours in there this past year. Wow. So, but it's been so rewarding for me. Um, it's just a single ministry. So you don't, it's not a team because, I mean, we have a team, but you don't go in as a team. So it's just uh, a lot of, you know, you go in there a lot at night or when nobody else is there. Yeah. So you're there on the weekends, evenings, yeah. and um, these girls are desperate. You know, one of the things that was interesting going in with Linda is uh, I've gone in and we've done like the group setting where we minister to uh, a room full of ladies in a circle and you just feel the presence of God there. Mm -hmm. um, the, the gals that, that work with Linda, um, they bring songs and um, testimonies and scripture and create conversation. And, uh, and then I've also been with Linda and we've sat with, you know, the worst of the worst that are getting processed and going to be spending, you know, a good amount of time in the state penitentiary. And these are those that are going to be, you know, they're in solitary confinement. Um, they can't be around the general population. And some of the stories that I've heard either directly from them or from Linda, I even mentioned, I said, there's some stuff we just can't share. It's a little graphic, but, you know, when the average person's in bed at 10 p.m., um, there's a whole underworld that is taking place mm -hmm. and really dark and crazy things. And I grew up around a lot of that stuff, so it's not a shock to me, but you see this population of very broken people. So mm -hmm. my question to you is, you're diving into the messiest lives. Why do you care when you're pouring yourself into these ladies? Some get out and their lives get changed, but Others, they go right back and do it again. Mm -hmm. And then you see them again. They go, back. why do you care? Why would you put yourself through that? Oh, I just feel like it's a calling on my life. And God has reiterated it over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. So when I've tried to leave, because it is, so, sometimes it's so discouraging. And it's definitely heartbreaking. Um, but the kids, I care about the kids, the people's yeah. kids. Yeah. And um, their identity is confused. So I always start with identity. Mm -hmm. I always start with Genesis 127. And I ask them, did you know your identity was in Christ? And they don't even know what that means. Yeah. And so when I start there... And then they always tell me, oh, I was born like this. And I said, oh, no, you weren't. Mm -hmm. And then they, I said, did you kite a chaplain? And they're like, yeah. And I said, well, I'm the chaplain. And they're like, what? Yeah. And then the second question they always ask me, have you been to jail before? Because I'm sure it just seems like I'm a natural fit there. Yeah. And then yeah, yeah. I always go, no, sorry, I haven't. But, you know, we didn't have social media then either. Yeah. So maybe yeah. I could have been. You so didn't, just didn't get um, caught. That's uh, all. Yeah. But anyway, um, 
So I start with identity, and then I let them know that they're not forgotten and that the, every promise, you know, that God has in the Bible, it's 100% a yes or an amen. So if they find something in here they like. So I always start with Psalms 139, 14 16, you know, through 16, where it says that he placed them in their mother's womb. Mm -hmm. But more importantly, too, to them is do they have children? Majority of them, 90-something percent, have children of their own. So that's where I can probably start off with them identifying with them. If they have their own children, if you're a mother, then that kind of hits your own heart strings. And then they start to, like... Um, their walls start to come down a little bit. And then if you talk to them about Jeremiah 29, 11, you know, I know the plans I have for you. Everybody knows that verse, but it's not that one. It's the 12 through 16 that mm -hmm. talks about, um, if you'll come to me and pray to me, you know, I'll listen to you and I will bring you back out of exile. Yeah. Then they start to understand, aha. And when I keep reiterating to them that it's a promise, God can't lie. So all faith is, is just knowing God. There's no big trick, yeah. okay? Yeah. The same faith that you have, that I could have, is just reading this book and believing it. And then one of the things is it says nothing's impossible with God. So if he can't lie, and you know the word, and you have a Bible, then you're just as capable as me. And then all of a sudden, you start seeing the light come on. And then all of a sudden, boom, they're starting to get free. Yeah. And it's a process, it's a journey, but it is... It's a marathon, yeah. you know what I mean? It's not a quick thing. So we, we sit in a circle and uh, Linda informs me, um, so the person sitting to your left, oh. so this woman killed a pastor. Um, mm -hmm. This other one was busted for a sex ring that got taken down. There was True. another one that didn't come in, but True. It was uh, attacked a guard, tried to choke a guard out. And, and so you think, man, you're in there with wild animals mm -hmm. and you know, why do you care? Or you look at society and you could look at the infraction or the crime or the, the sin that they committed. And it might be easy in human nature to be like, this is the scum of society. Um, these people need to be put away and kept away from. But then you get inside and you see what Linda and these ladies are doing and you see the brokenness mm -hmm. and you see the story behind the chaos. And you realize that, wow, even though they've done this and there is punishment and there are consequences for your sin, um, it does not change the love of God for these ladies. And to watch them cry and break and sob and get saved and forgive and, and let go of bitterness and, and receive forgiveness, it is such a beautiful thing because God shows off his grace in the darkest places. And so in what way have you encountered Jesus in amongst the least of these? How have you encountered Jesus there in ways that you haven't out in kind of the safe church world? Mm. Well, I've seen people be set free. You know, they've contacted me years later and they've sent me pictures where they've never, ever, ever had any contact with their families. And now they're at their family reunions. And now that their kids are um, calling them mom and they're able to meet their grandparents right before they die. Yeah. They have, you know, all this peace they've never had before. Mm -hmm. And the one thing I always tell them is, you know, you can do all of this, but you have to remember it's gonna cost you something. Yeah. It costs Jesus' life, you know? So you have to deny yourself and pick up your yeah. cross, yeah. you know? And it's the same thing with, like a perfect example is yesterday, you know, it was cold and blustery. I got home from the gym and I'm like, ah, you know, I don't want to go out to Purdy either, right? I see a girl out at Purdy for four years and it's so hard. Get in there, going to visiting, you have to wear something totally different than I get to wear in jail, anything I want. But out there, it's so difficult and make it hard. I had to wait 45 minutes to get in. It was just, ugh. But it's like worth it. On the other hand, it's going to cost you something. So yeah. you're going to have to deny yourself and pick up your cross. You're gonna have to give up something to get something. Yeah. But the, my girl out there whose mom put her in there, she's actually not guilty of anything. And she got a 17 year sentence and she has three small children is, um, she's a peer support person out there and she's brought tons of girls inside the prison mm -hmm. to Jesus. So when I see things like that, I know getting up taking a shower, going out in that weather, going across the windy bridge and doing all that, it's totally worth it yeah. because I'm just the messenger, mm -hmm. you know? I'm just the messenger. I can't save anybody. Only Jesus saves, yeah. but they are the ones that are gonna have to deny. But we all have the secret. And then, you know, to me, everybody here, 
you know, everything you do, your kids do. So everything you're doing, pretty much you've seen your parents or your families do. And for me, myself personally, I feel like we're blessed because we have you. So I do, I stay and do everything because I try and follow Dave the best I can. So I usually take whatever he teaches us at church and then I bring it in to my regular life and then also into jail the next week. I try and put something in the sermon because I'm doing church on Monday nights and Joe Haney does it on Tuesday nights. And I'm trying to do the same thing, but it's the same thing that Dave always tells me is, you know what? And the girls want to help everybody. They really have a heart to help everybody. They have the worst childhood you've ever heard in your life, okay? So don't judge them, please. They've Whatever you've heard, the worst thing ever, times 10 is their childhoods, okay? Uh, he told me not to tell you any stories, but um, it's <laughs> times 10. Yeah, it's bad. And it's bad, super bad. Anyway, um, it's what he always tells us is the same thing like in an airplane. You have to put your oxygen on first, then put your kids' oxygens on, okay? It's the same thing with our own families. You have to deny yourself and pick up your cross. You have to, our kids are watching us, right? Preach the gospel always, and if necessary, use words, okay? So nothing's gonna change from that right there. So it's gonna cost us something. Get into the word of God, let it change your own life first, then use your words. That's the only thing I can say, it's just, it's the same thing in real life, but they've never even seen a, a thing of hope because there's so much shame following them. But what they had happened to them, they blamed themselves and it had nothing to do with them. It was, they were broken when they were little kids and their identity flipped mm -hmm. and they don't remember anything except for shame yeah. and it has nothing to do with them. They were just innocent. So I love this and mm. pray for pray for Linda and, and Joe and Sarah. Mm. We, we met a little while back just contemplating how can Redeem jump in and uh, be a part of uh, the jail ministry. If you're interested in getting involved in that ministry uh, for the ladies, uh, please come see Linda. And just another reminder uh, that here's here's a woman in our church. She doesn't get paid for what she does, but she's found an outlet to help people. And it's just a reminder that all of us have been given a ministry. Not all of us will be called to the jails, um, but we're called to people. And if there's a willingness and a courage to go, the reward we reap is so much greater than the seed we sow. Amen. Can you give Linda a big hand of appreciation Thank today? You. Thanks, Linda. Love you. All right. Um, we are starting a major campaign and focus today, and the message that I'm going to be talking about today, and thank God for a 3 p.m. Seahawk game. Can I get an amen? Because I know some of y'all would be M-I-A, right? But uh, here's the promise. If you focus with all your heart, it will secure a Seahawks win, Okay. Unless Jordan Rothley can outfocus you, then he can pull it for the Packers. My wife's also a Pack fan. Anyway, so the title of the message today is, What Are You Worth? And it might sound, yeah, oh, Dave, that's cute. We're going to talk about how precious we are in the eyes of God. Uh, I, I want to go deeper than just that. And I've started to ponder and really revolve in my mind this idea of value and why a thing has the value it has, whether it's a piece of jewelry or a car, what you get paid, your house, real estate. Uh, my son moved to Texas and he's showing me when he first moved, he's now moving to Phoenix because he went through his first tornado and he's like, I'll never experience that ever again. <laughs> he sent me a text, no, no joke, just sent me a text uh, two days ago and he said, another tornado ripping right through Dallas, right through where he, so they got in a car and they drove three hours to a hotel. He's like, I'm moving to Phoenix. But he was showing me houses like, I'm like, Isaiah, this is not a house. This is a mansion. And they only want $20 for it. Okay. Like what is going on? But then you put the two and two together. Uh, they give you mansions for $20 when you have to tolerate tornadoes and God awful heat. Right? So value, what determines it? There are many factors. And I just want to talk about a few. And then we're going to get personal. And then we're going to transition into what it is that we can do with this revelation beyond our own knowledge of the value God puts on us. One of the things that determines something's value is 
rarity. You can use a lot of examples for this, but one of the things that fascinates me is my kids got into the baseball cards, the football cards, so they'd go to these sports card stores and they would, you know, win prizes and they'd save up their money and they'd buy. And, you know, if you just stop and you think about it, right, you have a card, it's thin cardboard. It's probably worth two cents. Okay, just go there with me. Then you take a photograph of a pro athlete and you slap it on the front of a two cent piece of cardboard. That ink is probably worth three cents, especially if they're mass producing it, okay? But if this is a famous athlete, this five cent card, let's say they print a million of them. So there's a lot in supply, but let's say it's Michael Jordan. Let's say it's early in his career. That little five cent piece of cardboard with a photo on it might be worth $10. But if they take a photo on that card and they only make one of them or they make 10 of them, that same little card could be worth 350,000. Show this. So this, this is the, they call this the Holy Grail uh, Michael Jordan card. $350,000 this thing sold for on eBay. Is it really worth that? Well, if somebody paid for that, then, then it's worth it to them, right? But the reason that this one is so uh, expensive is because it is rare. Uh, diamonds. Diamonds are another one. So diamonds are more common than river rocks. And so they have more value. I've never seen a man propose to a woman and hand her a ring on his knee and where there should be a diamond, there's a piece of gravel. Okay, I don't think they would make it to the wedding day. Okay, why? Because if diamonds were as common as gravel, they would lose their value. You know, it's, like, it's that new car you got that no one else had. And once you saw everybody else driving it, you started to hate your car <laughs> or your clothes. Like, oh man, I don't want to show up to this thing and somebody else is wearing my, my romper or whatever you wear. I don't know. <laughs> uh, you want, it's rare, right? I, I saw, this is a true story. There was an artist who... He duct taped a banana to a white wall and it sold at a private art gallery for $120,000. No, I'm dead serious. So you, you can snope this. Let me, let me read it. Stay off your phones. Okay, I'm talking. Um, a banana duct taped to a wall has been sold for a hard to stomach $120,000 at Art Basel, Miami. Italian artist Marazio Catalan bought a piece of the fruit at a local supermarket and then slapped it on a white wall at an art gallery during a VIP viewing party. A French collector then bought the piece titled Comedian for 120,000 listed price and a secondary edition later sold at the same price to a man from the same country. A third is now up for grabs for 150, though Catalan intends to sell it to a museum. Now, the reason that sells for that much, it's because of who he is. He's made a name for himself. He's a famous artist. Therefore, if his hands put it together, it has a whole lot more money than if I tried to do that. <laughs> this is a true story. I got us kicked, me and my son kicked off of eBay because I tried to sell an overly ripe banana. And they're like, we don't play. This is some years ago. Thank you for laughing. I appreciate you have a sense of humor. Some of you are like, you're so immature. It was only my second year as a senior pastor, so I was young and dumb then, okay? You know, but how many have seen art? Like, this is atrocious art. And there's people in there drinking wine, like, I wonder what, what he was communicating. He wasn't communicating nothing. <laughs> he was coming off a mad bender, and he scribbled, and he fell in ink, and his shoulder rolled against it. He passed out, and a tuft of his hair got stuck in there, and it just sold for a million dollars, right? Uh, it's just because it was Picasso. I mean, I promise you, I could outdo half these artists if it came to like making something look good. But it's because of who they are. It adds value. So this would be like the, the rarity or the supply. There's not a lot of supply. Then you have demand. So when you have high demand, everybody wants it, and you have a low supply of something, usually the value goes up. If you have a low demand, nobody really wants this, you know, you see this on Shark Tank and these, these folks just get brutalized by these sharks. Like, this is the dumbest idea I've ever heard of in my life and you completely wasted our time. Um, I, I, I want you to pay me to leave now, right? I mean, 
and you see, and I'm like, yeah, it makes sense. Nobody really, there's no market for that. So if there's low demand and there's a high supply, there's lesser value. But things can flip. For instance, take that same idea of a diamond. If there was a worldwide famine and uh, there was no food and no crops and people were starving, a loaf of bread would become more valuable than a diamond. Why? Because the demand is for something regarding survival and that luxury item, unless you could sell it to somebody rich and buy bread, it doesn't really have the value that it had when bread was flowing. I don't know if anybody's followed Venezuela lately, but they're experiencing some things like that, okay? So we have supply or rarity, we have demand, can make something valuable. And then there's this idea of usefulness. Now, I know this sounds like a finance seminar, but we'll get down to us in a minute. But if something has a use, you know, a lot of things that have value, it's because they solve problems. They bring solutions or they bring answers to questions or they bring solutions to issues that hadn't been solved previous. So somebody invents that solution and it becomes valuable. What convenience does it bring to me? And, and this is interesting because by and large, the amount you're getting paid right now from your company, and I know that this rule isn't hard and fast. It doesn't necessarily mean it's 100%, but we get paid according to the size problem we solve based on the opinion of the marketplace. So for instance, a, a rocket scientist as a human is just as valuable as a Walmart greeter, but they get paid more because they solve a bigger problem and there's less people that can solve it. Therefore, the market says, you're more valuable, we cut you a bigger check because a lot of people can shake a hand and smile, but not very many people can do that. So it doesn't mean one person's less, this is just the reality of life in this world. You know, somebody that drives Uber is not gonna get paid as much as somebody who's a, a commercial pilot because it takes more education, it takes more time, it takes more training, and there's less people can do it, and the market puts a higher value on it, right? So usefulness will also determine what something's worth. Tom Brady is an NFL quarterback. I don't know why he makes more than I do. Um, I don't know how his job is more important than mine. He doesn't make much more than I do, but he makes a little bit more. Um, we're gonna fix that, just keep giving. I'm kidding. I know you shouldn't make jokes like that in church. Number four is uh, condition. What's the condition of a thing? When you look at a car or a house, you have to list on Kelly Blue Book, you know, what, what's, what condition is it in? Or the card, is it mint condition? Is it triple A gem? I don't know what they say, but based on how worn it is or, or how perfect it is, that's going to also determine value. But ultimately, and this is where we're going to transition, ultimately value is based on what a person is willing to pay for something and this leads me to ponder the worth of an actual human, the worth of a soul, the value of, let's say, your life. And, and this is an important thing to ponder because a lot of the, way, the reasons we do what we do, a lot of the reasons we behave the way we behave, and, and we choose to spend our time and our focus, a lot, of, a lot of the reasons we feel the way we feel it ties in to the understanding of our value. Linda said, our identity. When I think that I'm somebody of low value, I tend to act accordingly. When I think that God doesn't value me or people don't value me, I tend to act that out and I kind of tie my value to the way I treat myself and the choices that I make. When you value something, you take really good care of it. You know, I, I told the story a long time ago, but I remember my, the first major roof job that I landed. I'm this young guy, and I went and picked it up. The guy paid me in cash, and I'm carrying like $20,000 in my pocket. My dad went with me at the time, drove down to Florence, Oregon. I did this hotel, and I'm driving back, and I, and I, I started laughing because I caught myself every 30 seconds. I was checking my pocket to see if it was still there, right? <laughs> it, different if you have seven cents in your pocket. Like, I'm not even thinking. I forget it's there. It goes through the washer and the dryer. I don't, it, because there's not that much value. But when I understand my worth, 
I tend to care for it deeper, meaning my soul, meaning my relationship with God, whatever it is that I value, I tend to put more focus on. And so what is the price tag on a person? And, and how would God value us compared to the world? So I looked this up. This is kind of interesting, but every country actually puts a monetary value on an individual citizen. I barely understood this because it, it's based on how much you make and the amount of money the government spends to put like protections in place, you know, like tsunami alarm warnings and infrastructure and codes so that buildings don't collapse. And I mean, it's just the craziest math problem you've ever seen. But then they calculate a number and they divide it by the citizens. The United States is the highest. The United States values every citizen in this country at $9.6 million. Australia, $4.6 million. Russia is 40000 Up to $2 million depending on where you're at. And then there's other countries, like I was in India. And I, I'll never forget, I went and saw where Mother Teresa had her convent. And I walk up the steps and I look into the very room that she lived in and the very bed she slept on. And it was just amazing to, to be right there where this woman did all of this mercy ministry. And I, I walk around the corner and I go up to the place, it's called the House of the Dying. And as we're walking down, it was during Diwali and you know, people are throwing you know, colored powder on each other and they're celebrating. And while there's all these people celebrating, I'm walking by people who are literally dying in the streets. I mean, like close to dead. Uh, walked into this house and there were Catholic missionaries and other Christians that were in there and they were comforting the dying. But there were those who didn't have a bed and, and they were there and nobody cared. And I asked like, why is this woman laying on hot concrete, shriveled up, about to die and nobody's doing anything about it? And this is where I got another lesson in the caste system is that there's not a big value on this human being. They're born in this caste, so therefore they're not really worth much and to help them would be to offend the gods who set these things in motion. They can come up 880 million life cycles and one day they'll be valuable enough to pick off the street. The point is, is that we see in society that whether it's an insurance company valuing how much you're worth in an injury or a death in a car wreck or the government or how much the judge says that you're worth in the divorce, or whatever it might be, we see that there is a diminishing value in our society toward people. I don't know if you've noticed this. I said it the other day, but there's, there's, a, there's a diminishing value of elderly people. There's a diminishing respect, because you can tell by how you treat something, how much you value it. It fascinates me beyond belief, the way that social media works, that some innocent person can get jumped in a park by three or four people or walk out of a high school and a bunch of kids are standing around and this poor person's getting beat down with no ability to defend themselves. There's a crowd of people watching, able-bodied that could rescue, step in and save this person. And instead of doing that, what happens? The phones come out, the cameras turn on and people value how many hits and likes they're going to get on the video more than they value the safety of the person. Fascinating. This is happening in our very country. And the Bible says that one of the signs that you'll know that it's the end is that the love of many will grow cold. Check this out. Matthew 24, 12. And because lawlessness will increase, the love of many will grow cold. This is Jesus giving the signs of his return. And then Jesus exposes the, the Pharisees' heart. And we got to be careful of this because remember the Pharisees were those who we would call like church leaders. They were church folks. They knew the Old Testament. They could quote it backwards and forward. They would shred you in a Bible quiz competition. They went through all the rituals. They tithed 10% of everything they had. They did everything according to the law, but their hearts were not right. And one of the ways that God exposed their hearts is even though you couldn't catch them breaking the law necessarily, 
the letter of the law. They were continually breaking the spirit of the law. And we've got to be careful in our own lives. And here's how. Moving from there, Jesus entered their synagogue and a man with a withered hand was there. In order to accuse Jesus, they asked him, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Now check this out. There's a guy who's crippled and they're like, oh, I know he's about to heal this dude. Okay, this is where we can catch him because you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. And if you do, the Old Testament says the community should get you out, take you to our public location and stone you to death. You're not supposed to break the Sabbath. He's gonna work on the Sabbath and heal this guy. They didn't care about the dude. They cared about the rules and the regulations. They cared more about a day than they did this human being. Now check this out. He says, he replies, if one of you had a sheep, now notice he didn't say a person. He compares this healing with the ownership of an animal. There's another one that talks about a son and an ox falling in a ditch. I found this fascinating because he's getting at something they loved very much. If one of you had a sheep and it falls into a pit uh, on the Sabbath, will he not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a man than a sheep? Therefore, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? What he's saying here is, he's like, oh, okay, let's, let's get down to where your heart's really at. You don't care about this dude because he doesn't profit you anything. He doesn't bring coin to your pockets. But sheep, you can use those and sell them to folks who need a sacrifice for their sins. Your sheep are, it's your livelihood. And if your golden goose fell inside of a ditch, wouldn't you reach in and pull it out because you care about your profits? He's basically saying you care more about money than you do about a human being. He exposes their hearts. Then Jesus said to the man, I love this. He's like, oh, and by the way, if you're wondering if I'm going to do it, go ahead and stretch your hand out. So he stretched out his hand and Jesus dropped the mic and he was like, booyah. And he threw up the crips on I'm just kidding. <laughs> and he dabbed on him. Um, uh, so after Jesus dabbed on him and it was restored to full use just like the other but the Pharisees went out and he plotted how they might kill him so he confronts their religious hearts and, and I was talking we have a, a circle of volunteers and one of the ways that we we can do this in ministry is maybe we do care about somebody getting healed but in the, in the, in the administration and the budgeting and the deadlines and the meetings and the reports and the, the services and the practices and, you know, the setup, tear down, load the trailer, all that. All of that is, is there to support souls being saved, marriages being healed. And what can happen is we can get so focused on all the, the trappings that are supporting the real heart of reaching people that we actually get burnt out and we lose our compassion for people because we've lost sight of what this is all about. It's about who Jesus came for and who he died for. What value does God put on you? What are you worth? Another way you can know the value that a person puts on something is by the lengths they're willing to go to possess it. You know how much somebody values a thing based on the sacrifice they're willing to make or the price they're willing to pay, not just monetarily, but with life, with time, with effort. You can look at the things in your life, the things that you have sacrificed the most for, that you've worked the hardest for, that you've gone the greatest distance for. You can point to those things and where you see a ton of effort and a ton of sacrifice, there you know what you value. This is what the Bible also says in, in regard to giving financially in the church. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And again, he's like, hey, if, you, if, you, if you're going to give out of guilt, then don't give. God loves a cheerful giver. But he's basically saying you can look at someone's bank account and you can see how they spend their money and where it's allocated and where people allocate their money, you know what their heart is connected to. So he, this is how you know what we value. How far did Jesus go for your soul? And this is where I want you to get a fresh revelation, even if you've heard it a million times. How far did Jesus go for you? Think about this. Let's, let's look at the journey and forget about us. Don't, don't, don't even think us. The trek that Jesus went on 
to bring you back into relationship with God. He came from heaven to earth. He went from perfection and glory down to this broken world. He went from fully innocent to becoming sin on the cross. How far did he go for you? He never committed a sin, yet on the cross, he became every rapist. He became every drug dealer. He took on the sin, not that he committed it, but basically he was being, not basically, fully, he was being punished for every sin that has ever been committed. And he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. Listen, he went from innocent to being punished as a guilty man. From one who was literally one with the Father, and there this crazy thing that I can't get my mind around. How far did he go for you? That the three-in-one God, the Son of God, the Word of God become flesh, was on a cross, and he utters words that would have been unimaginable. If you understand the unity of the three-in-one God, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I don't know how it worked. I don't know how God separated himself from himself. I can't fully get my mind around it, but Jesus Christ experienced separation from the Father as the full wrath of God was poured out on him and he experienced the hell that a non-believer will go to if they reject Christ. Jesus, the God of the universe, experienced eternal punishment in that moment. And I can't get my mind around it, but he went that far for you. Not just us as a crowd, for you. Your name, your soul, your fingerprint, nobody else has it. The pattern in your eye, nobody else has it. You want to talk about rare? No, there's not seven billion of you. There's one of you. You are rare and you are valuable to God. Why did he go to that length? Because he sees you with such value. Not only that, but he went from the tomb. God, who is life, is now dead. And when he's laying there in the tomb, the body or the cadaver wrapped in grave clothes, he then goes down into hell and he takes back the keys of dominion and authority that Adam and Eve lost. How far did he go? He starts in heaven. He comes to earth. He goes to the cross. He travels to hell. And then he travels back and he, he resurrects. He raises from the dead on the third day with a new body. And he gives us the keys of authority and dominion. And then from there, the risen Christ, he goes from resurrection to ascension. He goes back to heaven and he sits at the right hand of the Father. You know what his full-time job is? It's interceding for you. Interceding for you. That's what he's doing right now. Why does he do it? Because he values you. Why does he do it? Because he didn't want to just save you. He wants to keep you. He wants you to finish your race. He wants you to be fruitful. He wants you to experience his power. He went all this way for you. But he's not done. He's getting ready to bring us to heaven with himself. And then he's going to bring heaven to earth where he's going to dwell with you and with me and every other believer for eternity. Can you see the crazy distance God went to bring you into relationship with him? And if love or value or worth is measured by how far someone will go, then we see that the value on your life is immeasurable because if he was wearing a step counter, it would have ran out of numbers. If Jesus was wearing a Fitbit, based on how far he traveled, that thing would have overheated and blew up on his wrist. That's how much Jesus values you. Come on, how many know that's good news today? Listen, I want to tell you that this is why, because you are priceless to God, this is why he doesn't give up on you. It's your value. This is why he leaves the 99 and goes after the one because it's your value. 
Even when you turned your back on him, he never turned his back on you. Why? Because you have a priceless price tag on you. Even when you broke your promise to him, he never broke his covenant with you. Even when your love grew cold, his love has not dropped one degree for you. Even though the interests of the idols and the desires for other things and the enticements of the world maybe have pulled you into the wrong direction and you've gone astray and you've wandered off, God has stayed firm and his commitment is true and he will never leave you. He will never forsake you. He stays closer than a brother. Why? Because he values you so much and he refuses to lose you. That's the value on your life. You know how much he values you? You know that person that stares back in the mirror at you sometimes and you despise that person? That same person staring back at you in the mirror, he desires with an everlasting love. Why? Because he values you. This is the worth he puts on your life. This is the reason that the story of the prodigal son has continued to grab hearts and, and cause tears to flow through eyes for 2,000 years. You know why? Because it is Jesus Christ clearly demonstrating the value and the worth that God puts on somebody, even if they are covered in the filthiness of spiritual sin. God did not greet his son with shame. When his son came back, he met him with open arms. And the reason that we can relate to this is because if you have half a sense of what Jesus saved you from, you realize you don't deserve it. You realize in light of his holiness that you fall so far short that you're not worthy of his love. You're not worthy of forgiveness. You're not worthy of heaven. And yet he lavishes a ridiculous love. He pays a ridiculous price and he goes a ridiculous length to bring you home. Amen. Yes. Let me read this. Jeremiah 3.14, return, O backsliding children, says the Lord, for I am married to you. I will take you, one, from a city, and two, from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. This is where we get that phrase, God is married to the backslider. This doesn't mean like, hey, you can go out and just drop it like it's hot and shut the club down every night. That's not like, we're not encouraging that. Grace isn't a license of sin. It's the same value and the same love and worth that he has for you that allows you to feel the sting and the restlessness of sin. Listen, if you don't feel uncomfortable and convicted and uneasy when you habitually sin, you might want to question whether you belong to him or not because God chastens those he loves. The Bible says that a man who doesn't discipline his son hates his son. And so the same value that saved you is the same value that keeps you. And it's, it's even recognized in his discipline. When sin has ravaged you, the father wants to restore you. So if you've ever doubted your value to God, if you've ever questioned your worth, let me right now in the name of Jesus Christ, settle that question and remove that doubt. Not only are you valuable to the U.S. government to the tune of $9.6 million. But in the eyes of God, no human can calculate your worth. Romans 5.8 says this, because I love this, because sometimes we feel, yeah, I think he values me when I've had a great month or a great week. I'm living holy and I'm doing everything right. Then, okay, then I can understand that he values you. But Romans 5.8 says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He didn't wait for you to get it right and be like, all right, put the nails in. They've passed level four. He didn't do that. Or, or sometimes we have this idea, well, yeah, when I love him with all my heart and like I'm getting my Devo time in and, you know, I've been listening to worship and I've been praying, not watching as much television. When I pour my love out for him, yes, then, then he loves me back. But that's not true either because 1 John 4, 9 says, we love because he first loved us. The reason we feel the way we do sometimes is because we don't realize the value that he puts on us. You know that suicide, and I've unfortunately known far too many people over the years or been around the stories of the families or done the funerals, 
At the end of the day, I can't give an exact reason for every specific situation, but hopelessness to that degree is in large part this belief that I have no value and I'm not worth living. The reason we end up in self-destructive behaviors and we choose paths that hurt the people around us is that I don't feel valuable enough to make the right choice. And the way a man thinks is the way he is, right? And so if I, if I, if I see myself as unlovable and as rejectable and unwanted, I start to actually fulfill that as a prophecy by acting out the level or the price tag I perceive hanging off my life. But what if I knew that I was priceless? Not because I deserved it, but because God called me that. I would then say, wait a minute, if God loves me that much, and if I understood how far he went, I would then begin to guard my soul above all things, for out of it flows the issues of life. Or one version says, for everything you do flows from it. God paid for our salvation with his brutal death on the cross. And and this is where I want to close, and then I'm going to have Kurt come up and, and explain where we're going with laser focus this year. You know, if, if we understand this about ourselves, and please tune me in here, if God did all of this to reach you, yes, this is good for me to know, but what do you think the apple of God's eyes, what do you think the most valuable thing in the world is? It's the soul of every man, woman, and child. So if If it's souls God's after, I would that no man perish, but all come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Then we've got to move just beyond ourselves. And we've got to say, listen, while I live this life and experience God and allow him to sanctify me and strengthen me, if I'm truly walking with the spirit of God and the ministry of Jesus in me, then I have to look at every single person around me And I I need to pray, God, let me see them through your lens. Let me value them the way you value them. Because I promise you, Dave Riesinger does not have the power or the humility to see people that way without the Holy Spirit giving me that. You know, in Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 1 and 2, it it didn't say this. Jesus promises that they're going to receive the help or the power. And, And here's the scripture, and here's how we probably should interpret it. And you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you shall with that power enjoy deeper worship and be happier throughout your week. That's part of it. No. The power of the Spirit shall come upon you and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. I don't have the Holy Spirit so that I can feel more goosebumps during worship. I have the power of the Spirit so that I can give God what he wants, and that's one more soul snatched out of the fires of eternal damnation, brought to the doorstep in the arms of the Father. Amen? And and this is where we've been talking as a staff. We're kind of in this, and, and if you don't see it, like, If I went into your job, you could probably tell me a lot of things that I wouldn't know. But my world is church full-time for the last 25 years. And I've seen two and a half decades of church trends. And one thing that I've seen recently in the last 10 years, five years, is that, I've said this a thousand times, that the gospel has become very me-focused. It's become very, like, buffet focus, like what can I get out of it? And then what happens is, is that when we take, 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 and we don't give, we actually start to feel the lack of freshness in our lives. Because real joy comes when there's babies being born in the kingdom. Real joy comes that when, as an expression of my faith, that other people come into the kingdom. Right? If this is the case, then God is saying, redeem church. I want you in 2020 to live out your name. I know sometimes we don't witness because we don't know how to share our faith. We don't know where to start. 
And this is what we're going to help with because door-to-door evangelism used to be the thing. You get a knock on your door in the middle of the day, you're like, what the heck is going on? Like, grab the shotgun. Like, why is someone at my house? It's just weird now because of home invasions and all that. Then it used to be, and I'm not saying these things don't work. They do in other countries. They're thriving. It used to be Billy Graham's in town. Get everybody to a stadium. Get your friends there. Get them saved. Do the follow-up thing. Give them the book of John. And you'd see people get saved and, and churches grow out of that. Or it was the Sunday school movement. We're now in a day and age where it's, you're hard-pressed to find any churches. There are some, but you're hard-pressed to find churches that are actually growing from reaching secular non-believers and bringing them into a, a relational context, explaining the gospel, walking with folks, letting them feel like they belong before they believe. You're not seeing actual conversions. You're just seeing church transfers. Well, that church, they got Disneyland now, so we're moving our family. Or that church, you know, they just got a new pastor or a new whatever. They just got a building and we're tired of meeting in a high school. You know, whatever it is. But what it is, is this. We've got to give God what he wants. I'll close with this and then, Kurt, you can come up. You know, I thought about it in this regard. It's just something to put it in our own court. We hear this is that, uh, and maybe Kurt will share this stat, but there's a lot of believers that find it like, I believe everybody should know Jesus, but we think it's offensive to share your faith. Like everybody needs God, but it's offensive to tell people about Jesus. Now think about this. Think about how anti-God that is. If you had a terminal disease and I had an ample supply of the cure, would you be offended if I offered you this cure. Now you might if you don't think you're sick. But at the end of the day, you would be so grateful that I risked rejection and I risked the awkwardness. We are literally walking around with the cure for eternal damnation, sin and bondage and destruction and separation from God. And then yet we think it's offensive to offer somebody the cure. How will they know unless somebody's sent? Right? Would, would, would it be offensive if a blind person was walking and wandering toward a cliff? Would, would it be offensive to intervene and say, hey, can I turn you? You're going the wrong way. I'm not trying to preach at you. I just want to, hey, can I, can I just turn you this way a little bit? No. In practical life, we get it. Or what would happen if you were watching the news and your family was in a burning building and, and you knew there was time, this thing is spreading, but somehow they're locked and they can't escape and there's this crowd watching and the fire's moving in and you're not there and there's able-bodied people. How would you feel if no one ran in and rescued your family? Like what would that do? And God is watching and we have a great cloud of witnesses that are literally watching. And I don't know why God did it the way he did. He put us in a real high stakes war. It's not simulation. It's not a fairy tale. This is not a video game. We don't get a reset button. It's not like playing Call of Duty. Oh, I just got shot up. Reset. New life. We don't get to do that. It's appointed to a man once to die and then judgment. And so what we do with our life, it's literally going to have eternal ramifications. And there are passages that talk about the fact that God will not move in the earth unless he does it through his people. And when the sinner comes along and you don't warn them of the destruction to come, it says in, I think it's Ezekiel, that the watchmen on the wall, that their blood will be on your hands. Now, I understand that's Old Testament, there's grace, but we have an obligation to run into the building. And the same way you would be heartbroken if no one helped, what would you do for the person or what would you feel toward that one that ran into the flames and rescued your loved one? Listen, God puts so much more value on the soul of a person than their physical life alone. And he's called us to be light. And so Kurt, why don't you come up and instead of just saying, here's the why, over these next few weeks, we're gonna talk about the what and the how. And um, Kurt, has just come on full time. And, and let me just tell you this about Kurt. This guy is, and his wife Meg, are sincerely dedicated. Come on up, man. They, he, 
sincerely dedicated. You, you might not know uh, much about Kurt. I'd suggest you get to know him. But, but this guy has been working for free through all this transition. He's been pouring and volunteering his time. Um, he's, he just took a massive, when I say massive, a massive cut in pay to come work for us full time. He does it because he believes that the church is God's answer for a broken world. And so talk about what, uh, and I'm gonna step aside and then I'll come back up when you're done, but talk about what it is that we're gonna be doing, man. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm going to say the most obvious statement um, that might be out there, but we can clap and cheer and get excited after a sermon like this. But the truth of the matter is sharing your faith is hard. Sharing your faith is not something comfortable. It's awkward. It's something that takes a lot of courage. Um, and, and oftentimes we'll sit there as a body and we'll think it's the staff or the pastor's job to share faith. And really the only thing that's working out there right now is what we're calling relational evangelism. Relational evangelism. It's all about being people who are living a transformed life, loving people where they're at, and simply inviting people to come and see Jesus. For them to ask questions about why we're living this way. And to just invite them to come see. You know, in Matthew, when, when Matthew gets saved, when, 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 when Jesus says, hey, come and follow me, the next thing it says in the Bible is that Matthew invited his friends over and Jesus came and had dinner. And so Matthew got it. Is all about these, this is my circle, and I gotta get people to come and see Jesus. What we're called to do is not evangelize our cities, it's not to start a movement, it's inviting a friend who's going through a rough time. It's a coworker that you build a friendship with. Maybe it's the prodigal son or daughter in your life, or a neighbor that you simply ask to come and see. And, and one of the things that we got wrong with the church is you're asking people to come and see, but we gotta create a space that's no pressure. No judgment, not weird churchy stuff. Can I get an amen to that maybe? Just an open and honest conversation about Jesus. And that's what we're trying to create. So we're going to be running this thing called Alpha. And it's all about, um, it's all about an interactive course for people to invite people to come and explore faith. I've seen it work in churches all around the world. Um, and let me just show this video real quick to get a glimpse of what we're asking you guys to do. We all have that person in our lives. That neighbor we pass by every day outside our homes. That coworker we see at the office five days a week. Or those friends we catch up with every once in a while. People we wish could know and experience the love of God. How do we share it? Where do we even start? Deep inside, we know that it'll cost us something to open up our lives and share our faith. It takes time, vulnerability, sacrifice, the risk of rejection. But this is our call, to open our lives and to share Christ with the people close to us. Because it's only through opening your life up that spaces for honest conversations are possible. Spaces where people can truly be themselves and explore the deepest parts of life with people they know and trust. That's why we're running Alpha. It's a course over several weeks where you can invite your friends to explore life's biggest questions over a meal. It's a chance for you to invite that person into an honest conversation about faith. Because when it's hard to find the moment, or the words, or the courage, you can simply invite. Alpha, who will you invite? So let me, let me share a little bit about Alpha, because this is what we're going to be running. So Alpha is really simple. It's broken down into three things. Food, talk, and discussion. The first is food. So every session begins with food. Because eating food together creates space for people to connect, to actually relax, and to share life on a deeper level. And then there's this thing called Alpha Talks. And really what Alpha Talks are, are they're designed to engage people from all walks of life. And they explore the big issues of life and faith. So they unpack the basics of Christianity and address questions like, who is Jesus? Why and how do I pray? 
and how does God guide us? And then there's discussion. So we don't just tell people what to believe, but we have an, a, a discussion time with the opportunity for people to respond and talk and hear from others and contribute their own perspectives in an honest, friendly, and open environment. We have table hosts and helpers, and we're, we've got those lined up, and they sit at the table, and they help this dialogue happen. The whole time that people are going through this, we're praying and warring for them, right? But Jesus would meet them where they're at. So here's the big thing. We're starting an Alpha course uh, Wednesday, February 5th. Um, it's going to be at Olympic View Baptist Church, where we have the church building on Wednesdays. We have all the food. We have all the table hosts. It's going to be a party. We're going to be hospitable. We're going to be decorating the tables. We're going to be friendly. It's not going to be weird if you invite people into it. Um, but you simply have to show up, and you simply have to invite. So, there's two of them going on. From 6.30 to 8.30 will be the main one. That's what we want you to invite people to and for you to join us. Um, and then there's also going to be a special women's alpha, uh, the Redeemed Women's Bible Study is getting restarted here. And it's going to be uh, from 9.30 a.m. to 11.30. But that's women only. But that's a great place for you to invite if you have that person in your life that might be uh, staying at home with young kids. There'll be child care provided. We're going to make it as hospitable as we can. Uh, so it'll be a really exciting time, which we're really excited about. So what does this mean for you? I always like to make sure that we have clear communication on what it means for you. Here's what we're asking you to do. Um, you know, to start a movement around evangelism and uh, really running Alpha well, one of the main barriers is uh, you guys are all probably sitting there saying, I don't know what I'm inviting people to. Um, so uh, we really want you to experience the power of this model of evangelism and alpha. So we want as many people going through it as they can. Uh, to kind of treat it like a small group. Um, you sit at the same table. You have the same host. You have the same people you're building life with. Some of them will be believers. Some of them will not be believers. But it's a really great uh, thing to do. So I want as many people going through it this term as we can. If you can't make every week, that's fine. There's no pressure in that. But we want you there as many times as you can. I've done it a couple times in my own personal life. It's amazing. You meet new people. You connect with new people. But the other thing that's really good is uh, there's eight questions uh, that we address. And I guarantee, uh, well, not very many people could answer all eight of those questions in a real way that would reach a, a non-believer. So I have a whole new way of talking about my faith because I go through Alpha, and I love it. But also because half the things that I say to a non-believer doesn't really work, right? You have to think about have a, a, a real open and honest conversation with people who are processing this to learn how to talk about your faith, which is really exciting. So I want as many people as we can going through it. So uh, I hope that's, that's something that you'll consider. Uh, and then two, the harder one, is we want you to invite. So uh, imagine how many people there are here. And imagine a movement of life change that would happen in University Place, Lakewood, Tacoma, uh, Silicon, DuPont, wherever you're from. If each one of us simply invited and brought one person, Right? How many people's lives would change? What that would begin to take? And what happens is there's a snowball effect that happens there, right? Then brings new, new babies are being born into the kingdom. Those are your inviters for next term. We're running this thing over and over again so that we'll be bringing people in here, which is really exciting. So who is, over the next month, we want you to invite your friends, your family, your neighbors, your coworkers, but we're not going to leave you hanging, okay? So you don't have to, like, get nervous about that. So that's a big step, and we're going to start simple. So one... If you want to go through Alpha, you can simply go to the Connect Center and we have uh, things that you're just reserving your spot so that we know that you're coming. So we know how much food to make and that we can assign you to a table, okay? And we'll have all the table hosts and they're all great people, which is really exciting. So go to the back and if you feel called to just do and experience Alpha this, this uh, try Alpha this next time, this next term from February 5th for eight weeks. Uh, you come as many times as you can, then go and sign up. Two, I'll be back there to answer any questions that you have. I know everyone has a lot of questions. We'll be talking about this over the next couple of weeks. But I'll be back there, and I can answer any questions you have about Alpha. Um, and I'd love to chat with you uh, if we can. And then three, pull out the card. I got it here in my pocket. Pull out the card that we handed to you. So everything out of evangelism starts with prayer. And so this is a, a campaign that we're going to be doing over the next 21 uh, days. If you can hit the next slide. Um, it's a 21-day prayer challenge. And the idea of this is that uh, as we enter into worship, we're going to be praying. 
And maybe you have names right now that God's putting on your heart. And we want you to write down the names of three people you would like to explore faith. Three people in your life. Uh, maybe it's not this term. Maybe it's, you know, years down the road. But who are three people that you're willing to enter into prayer with? And then you're going to set an alarm for 1102. And at 11.02 every day, uh, you're going to get a, a reminder from your phone to just pray for your city and for those three people. Okay? For those three people that God puts on your life. And then you're also going to pray, and we're going to be open and expectant to see how God might give you opportunities to invite them to Alpha, to invite them to church, to invite them into a conversation about faith. But it's really intentional. Everything starts from prayer. Everything starts from prayer. And the back's just a, a simple prayer if you need it, um, but really asking for the kingdom to come here on earth as it is in heaven and for the kingdom to come into each one of those people's lives. So we're going to start small. Who knows? If everyone invited one, we'd have, you know, 200 people there. But if not, maybe it's going to be 20, maybe it's going to be 30, maybe it's, we're expecting that. With people going through the church, we want 50, 60, 100 people going through this, where we can begin to build momentum around this. Um, but I guarantee you, we will be a different body, and you'll be a different person. If you experience someone's life getting transformed, you'll remember the joy of your own salvation. You'll get excited. This is an easy thing. You want to build relationships. It's all about thinking about the people that you have a relationship with and simply inviting them. I have to share one quick story. I know we got quick on time. I have a buddy. I go to the same Starbucks every morning. If you go to that Starbucks, you've probably seen me working in the corner. It's the greatest ministry that I've ever done. Um, some, a, a buddy that I met there comes down and sits down with me, and he says, I want to talk about faith. It's the coolest thing I've ever had. So I talked to faith for about 45 minutes, um, and I say, hey, I'm running Alpha, and uh, it's this thing, and I, I would love for you, I explained it to him, uh, and I said, I would love for you to just come with me. You know what he said? No. <laughs> he said straight no. But, so that's not a success story. I want to say that. But <laughs> I'm saying it because it's not awkward. It's not awkward. I didn't, I didn't condemn him of his sins. And, and right there, we were building a relationship. We had this open and honest conversation about faith. I'm going to invite him again. So most people would need to be invited two, three, four times. But it didn't, it, it wasn't awkward. It wasn't weird. It was awesome. And, and we'll keep inviting him. But that's what, what it is, is us. Our word is courage. And I'm just praying for courage for this body. But that we'll be covering people in prayer. And that some of those people will come and experience Jesus. Just come and see. That's all we're asking, all right? So we're going to run Alpha. Uh, Dave, you might have something to, to say. If you have any questions in the back, but please, please, please sign up. I know it seems like a big commitment, but it's going to be awesome. Oh, the whole staff's going to be there. Most of our elders and leader team's going to be there. So it's going to be a great time to, uh, to be in relationship. Thanks, Kirk. Appreciate it, man. Thanks. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to, uh, we're going to worship God one more song. Is that cool? Um, is, is, is he worth it? <laughs> Um, so we're going to worship God. And during this time of worship, there's two things. Um, if you could prepare your offerings, I, I do have to brag on this church. December uh, uh, this year, we had the, lar the second largest giving month that we've ever had. And uh, so give God praise for the generosity that came through. Um, I, I, the flesh in me says, Dave, don't say that. Then people are like, oh, cool. I don't need to give anymore. No. Listen, this is how we're able to buy all this food. If you all come, we might need to scale back to like Cheerios. Um, so we're gonna worship God. And as we do, if you could prepare your gift as, a, as an act of worship and then write those names down on the card or be thinking, number one, pray for those people that you write down. Number two, pray that God would give you a burden for the lost. He'll do it if you ask. Let's worship God. And then I'll dismiss us when we're done. Um, Go ahead and stand up and let's sing. Father, be with us right now. Bless the gifts as they're being prepared and speak to us about who it is that you want us to reach out to. God, fill us with your spirit and your burden in Jesus' name. Come on, let's worship.